It's the True Penny Show with your host, James True Penny. Hello and welcome to the True Penny Show. My name is James Trudney and this is my show. And as you can probably tell by my tone, I start the show with the near his home in Delaware. And before we start today's show, um, I wanted to mention that because it's kind of very sad for me as he's one of the wrestlers that has defined what pro wrestling has been about for the last 20 years. We've talked an awful lot about him and the Briscoe Brothers on this show as we reach our 300th episode in a couple of weeks' time. Much amount of that time has been talking about the Briscoe Brothers. And as such, we'd like to pay tribute to him here. We're not going to do a big tribute show just because there are plenty of people who pay tribute to him or more importantly in his life and also because we feel that perhaps that we need a break from that, if you see what I mean. Because I do, as I've had a lot of things going on in my life that revolve around passing people. Um, and John, I'll tell you, who's with us today, um, that I used to volunteer for every victory going when it came to uh, the passing of professional wrestlers when I was at Steelshare Magazine because I thought it was important to record the history of those pro wrestlers, especially the ones that were less well known. And I did the same job at Total Wrestling, and I did more or less the same job at WrestleTalk TV as well. However, in the last couple of years, it's not good my mental health that much good to do all these issues, and I'm sure there are people like me out there. So I welcome to John Dinsdale, if he has any words to say about Jay. Yeah, it's like, that's, that sort of rocked me to a loop. It- it came out of nowhere, and obviously it's a tragic car accident, but there are going to be no, there will be few teams that manage to accomplish what the Briscoe brothers did. I mean, even as a solo wrestler, Jay Briscoe was pretty much one of those sort of total package guys. They could move, they could talk, and you knew damn well that everything they did meant, like, the world to them. Wrestling was their life, and it's 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 ridiculous that like he wasn't even 40 and he was gone like it it sucks and there are so many things that could be said but just just go watch some briscoe brothers matches and it'll say anything you could ever really need to say and yeah, absolutely, I agree with that. And it is such a crying shame. Now, the Troopany Show has not given the Briscoe Brothers an easy ride down the years um, because of their attitude and comments politically. Sometimes we've had disagreements with them, but they were people who did reflect and did grow and um, did try and to be better Christians, as they put it, and um, believed in a faith of true God. Believed in a faith of universal love, which is a doctrine most Christians should adopt at some point. So we do applaud them for that. And what is really sad, as John said, this was a year when they blew up. The, the end of Ring of Honor as an independent company or under the uh, umbrella of its previous owners was actually a godsend for the Briscoes. An Impact Wrestling TV Tag Team Championship, the, um, Alco- um, <laughs> the Crockett Cup, they won that. Um, they had an incredible run in the NWA, a brilliant one in Impact Wrestling, ended up backing Ring of Honor and then that glorious series of matches with FTR. I will tell you this, when I laid out my top 10 matches last week in the top five, three of them, just 
will tell you how much effect he's had on the wrestling industry in the last 12 months, but also through his year, through his entire life. So rest in peace, Jay. Now, John, I have gathered you here today to discuss some historic wrestling for a change, because we said we were going to do something different. Um, this is a weekend when there has been so much wrestling going on. <laughs> it's been difficult to keep up. I have to put up now, and we will pick and choose our matches and cards next week to talk about. Um, there's at least three we could have a go at that are really good. Um, but NWA Georgia Championship Wrestling. When I said, hey, let's do some NWA Georgia Championship Wrestling, what did you think, John? I had no idea what to expect. This is one of those companies I've not really seen anything from. Like, I, I could guess who I was going to see from the time period. But given the territory system, it's kind of hard to predict just who you will, like, who's working where. And, like, with being, like, late into 1981, it could be a case of, well, oh, I'd have expected to see this guy. Oh, he's working other side of the country. It's, I didn't, I didn't really know what to expect. I just had an idea of who to expect. Well, yeah, there you go. Yeah, I think that was the kind of thing for me. It's a company I'd always heard about. It's historically important, which we can get into as the show progresses. And the original territory was founded by Paul Jones, not number one Paul Jones, Jones from the Carolinas, the other Paul Jones. He ran the company from 1944 to 1974. Um, by the end, he was being assisted by Ray Gunkel as um, he was somewhat physically infirmed at that particular point. Um, and the company ran into a bit of um intriguing <laughs> territory issue because um, the, there was a rival promotion in Georgia which cropped up. Um, basically, the kind of ran up against um, Georgia Championship Wrestling as an outlaw promotion. And so Jim Barnett came in to take over the promotion and try and right the ship, if you will. Jim Barnett, long-time uh, promoter uh, in Australia um, and in Canada and in the US, um, and he kind of held on to the Atlanta Territory for nine years, was still working for WCW sometime after that. Um, so we're kind of in the Jim Barnett era. Um, Intriguingly, Jim Barnett was possibly, well, definitely the only openly gay promoter in North America at the time um, and had a reputation for making great decisions and great professional wrestling. Um, and, yeah, he's an intriguing cat. And this was kind of really, when you think about it and you watch this, if you're not familiar with it, if you have watched the NWO Power Show over the last couple of years, you know, before it went deeply south as of late, <laughs> you will get the idea because it is essentially, this format is what that format is based on. The quality of matches on the current NW Power Show is slightly higher than this because these are all squashes. But you have a studio, you have a studio audience, you have a presenter, you have a colour man, they interview people, there are wrestling matches. And that's pretty much it, isn't it, John? Yeah, that's kind of a go-to NWA formula. And it's it's kind of the formula of like shows we've watched in the past as well. Not just from the NWA. It's just the, no. the sort of generic television wrestling format. Which I mean, because the, the entire idea of this is to get people into arenas, specifically uh, the Omni and Atlanta, 
which was, you know, a big place for wrestling at the particular time. The Omni was an arena that, that was, it was very much as we talked about the, um, oh, it was the union, reunion, reunion arena in Dallas. It was kind of a similar kind of venue to that. Um, I know WCW tried to promote it as the Madison Square Garden of the South, which was a very sensible thing to do at that particular time. And we joined this show, interestingly, as the National Tag Team Championship Trophy is up for grabs in a tournament that will be held at the Omni Atlanta. That is the, the, the basis of what we're watching here. Um, it's in 1981. Our play-by-play guy is the Dean of Pro Wrestling Commentary, Gordon Soley. And our cool man is none other than Rowdy Roddy Piper. What's your first impressions of those two, John? It's like, I, I knew we were going to get some pretty decent commentary with Soli at the helm. And then just having, I saw Rod Piper smiling in a suit. And I was just like, what is this? And it, it it's glorious because he's, there's still the like Rowdy Roddy Piper traits there. But you could tell he's reining them in to be like this this pseudo friendly television color commentator and and he gets giddy over some of the matches it's just i looked at it and i was just like oh i'm in for a trip here (laughs) it is intriguing because as you get into it piper is not a heel or a baby face he leans towards the heels but he is absolutely fair to the baby faces. He says when he sees something that's good, he says it. He says it's good. He does criticize them for maybe not having so much of a killer instinct, or praises them when they do something out of character. But he's very much an even-handed commentator. And you're right; he is wearing a fabulous polyester suit in this particular show, and always trying to steal the show. Because even as Gordon Soli is running down the format, Piper is fidgeting and moving around and looking to the camera and smiling and playing with the trophy. He he's stealing scenes, as they would say in Hollywood. If you watch uh, the Magnificent Magnificent Seven, Yul Brynner has this big set piece speech when they're when they're in the center of town, and all the way through it, um, uh, Steve McQueen is cleaning his gun, fiddling with his gun, just trying to upstage Yul Brynner. And it's like watching that. It's like watching like here's the two biggest names in Hollywood, and they're trying to run each other down. And it's like. It, they do make a great pair. It is actually some of the best commentary I've ever heard. It's just really nicely balanced. They don't talk over each other. They give each other room to breathe. And you are informed about the product you are watching, which is exactly what their job is supposed to be. That was my favorite type of like, here is a wrestler guesting on commentary. And it's like, they because he does the whole like three episode run as well. And the every time it's like, I know I have an ego, like a personality p- to push over here, but I'm not going to let it overshadow the wrestling. I'm still a wrestler and I will give you wrestling sort of perspectives alongside sort of the more analytical play-by-play guy. And it, it works perfectly. Like, as you said, it's, it's some of the better sort of this style of commentary I've seen. Because sometimes you'll get wrestlers on commentary and they'll just put themselves over. Or they'll be like, oh, well, I would have done this. Oh, not that's nothing like me. Then you've got Roddy Piper, who's there just watching wrestling and giving his thoughts on the wrestling. It's really fun. He does also say, "I would have done this," but says it in a way that's trying to explain what his character's like when he finally does start wrestling. You know, which is always very clever. I mean, this was—I think he would have just come off his Pacific Northwest run 
um, before he did this. Um, and he always came into a territory as a heel because that gave him two runs. Because he could always turn babyface. If you come in as a babyface, it's really hard to turn heel. But if you start as a heel, it's a lot easier to turn babyface. <laughs> so, you know, Ruddy was super smart. So Ruddy learned from the best in the business and applied it where he could. You know, he, the booker in San Francisco, his name escaped me, but he taught him how to book. He taught him how matches were supposed to work. He told him how to do stuff, you know, how to get over, what was the best way to get over, what was the quickest way to get over. He sent him to the Los Angeles um, UCLA to go watch matches that they used to have on film. So he knew everything about every wrestler that wrestled in LA for months on end. And that's how he got good, you know. Um, and, um, yeah, he's, he's just such a good talker because he's – He's, he knows the industry and he knows how to get people over. And the first people they have to get over is the tag team of Bullet Bob Armstrong and Brad Armstrong. Um, I forgot how over Bullet Bob Armstrong was. <laughs> I mean, the, the key is every over. woman in that crowd kind of gave it away. Like, holy uh, shit. It went like, all for Brad either, wasn't it? <laughs> No, there, there was a lot of, there was just so many cheers and so many happy women in the front rows that you can see on hard cam. Like, those guys were over and then some. Oh, definitely. I mean, Bob was always a big star in the Southwest. Oh, sorry, Southeast. He was a massive star in Alabama. I have actually seen the match where he beat Hulk Hogan clean in the main event for the Alabama State Championship, I think it was, or whatever the top title in, in the Alabama region was. And he and the place went mental. It's like he won the Super Bowl. <laughs> this is it's quite remarkable. He was a supremely naturally talented wrestler. Um, and it came to like crowd interaction and being a sympathetic babyface. And he could work as well. And then you've got Brad Armstrong, who is really young. Like, he's like, I guess he'd be 19 or so, 20 at this particular point. But he's already showing signs of the super worker he would become. And he would be a WCW mainstay as well. Um, but what were your thoughts on these two as wrestlers? Yeah, they were perfectly fine. As you said, both sort of had, like, their work boots on. And even though the matches themselves aren't sort of... 20 30 minute technical master classes you can see the cogs you can see the wheels you can see like the skill that they have and yeah they keep the crowd invested and continuously sort of have the house nearly blown off with how over they are i was gonna say how <laughs> excited people are but no it's it's beyond excitement at some points no this is this is yes this is attractions we perhaps shouldn't be talking about um but yeah, Brad Armstrong is, is was the worker's worker. Absolutely was. Um, we cannot get away from him. It had to happen. Kiyaji Muto, as the great Muto, once wrestled Brad Armstrong on a WCW show. It was dropped in, as a lot of WCW shows were done at the time, on a live show, um, because Muto's original opponent couldn't be there. So they gave him Brad Armstrong. And Dave Meltzer gave it five stars because it was the perfect wrestling match in the time they were given under the circumstances. It was get him over, and he did. 
and that was Brad's job, and Brad got him over. Brad's major success, of course, would be WCW as the Cruiserweight champion, uh, where he had a run really before the Cruiserweight division really got going. Um, and then he did a lot of agent work because he was just that good a wrestler and they needed that kind of mindset to build matches up. But it became the future of the industry. Bob Armstrong went on, of course, to be, um, he was the commissioner for Smoky Mountain Wrestling. He did loads of other stuff. He'd still wrestle well and late into his career, late into his career. Um, but his most famous son, of course, is um, Jesse James. Um, Road Dog himself, uh, who would, of course, go on to be probably the biggest name out of the family, though probably, I'd argue, and no offence, Road Dog, but the least talented wrestler. <laughs> Oof. I think Scott was more talented than Road Dog was, as a, just as a straight ring worker. But I'm not convinced that, I'm not convinced that Road Dog could keep up with the other two when he just came to ring work. He was much better co-talker and a brilliant character wrestler. Fairly awful human being, but <laughs> I think um, you know. I don't know who was the be- who was the best member of the Armstrong family for you. I sure. think I'd agree with you, to be honest. That would be fun. And then we move on to that will be your national heavyweight champion, Wildfire Tommy Rich. Um, he's having an interview with Gordon Solly. And he's talking about masked superstars uh, bounty, a $12,000 bounty that is placed on the head of Tommy Rich. Tommy Rich was the draw in um, Georgia. There was a reason why they called him Wildfire. He was so over, like insanely over. Um, And, you know, he would go on to beat Harley Race for the NWA World's Heavyweight Championship. Though that was a arguable case whether Harley was in on that or not and whether it was a double cross he didn't hold it but uh, Tommy didn't hold it very long and Jim Barnett was kind of in the doghouse with <laughs> with the NWA for quite some time after that um but yeah this was uh, this was a uh, was an intriguing character we'll get to talk about his wrestling in a bit but what did you think of his promos I mean it did set out what what it was there to do and it it's funny because there's almost a conspiratorial element to it because like when the biggest plot threads running through all three of these episodes is like Tommy Rich is assuming that um Super Destroyer and oh I can't remember the other he's assuming that's yeah or he's assuming they're the same person and that's his entire MO he's out to prove that they are the same person it's almost like this must be where like the Ezekiel and Elias thing came from to a degree because (laughs) it's just the case of like it's almost the same level of like conspiratorial nut job yet like rich is just selling it like nobody's busy like no i am damn certain and i will kill him and it's just so fun like he's such a character and you can tell why people were drawn to him because his charisma is off the chart yeah he is it's just like he's got the crowd in the palm of his hand the couple of brilliant adverts because you realize this show is actually sponsored by stanley tools um, oh, they, and all, they didn't say yeah. it enough times. <laughs> and also, brilliantly, um, um, a advert for Taylor's Fried Chewing Tobacco, which has the awesome line: "You're about to, to, to you're about to taste the full meaning of moisture." <laughs> 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 I 
Anywho, we next move on to another star of the area who would be Yuri um, Van Kopp, who was one part of the national tag team champions. Um, sorry, yeah, was the national tag world tag team was national tag team champions, which they were dropping for the tournament because they always had a tournament for the belts at the end of the year, which is kind of a unique feature. Um, I believe that was Teddy Long actually collecting ring jackets there. That was his first job in uh, pro wrestling was for Georgia Championship Wrestling, which was he would collect the ring jackets from ringside and take them backstage for people. That's how he got started in the wrestling industry. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll move on from that because <laughs> there's all Don't sorts of stories blocked. about that. Yeah, sorry? Don't want to get blocked. Get blocked. <laughs> I don't think it's Teddy that's doing the blocking. Um, Ivan Karloff. You kind of only really hear of him in the, obviously he was WWF champion, took the belt from Bruno Sanatino, had a short championship run, won with that knee drop off the top rope. And you kind of like, don't really see it much of him after that, as far as like national prominence is concerned. His biggest run after that was in WCW or NWA as the Russians, which obviously this was a fledgling part of that particular promotion. And but he is a monster heels monster heel, isn't he? He can wrestle, he can fight, he can brawl, and he can do some high flying stuff as well, which is quite a remarkable all round gift for someone in nineteen eighty one, really. Yeah, he is quite the monster, and that that like finishing knee drop he does is horrifying. <laughs> like, I watched him do that, and I was just like, holy shit. How yeah, come nobody a... does that anymore? And then I saw where his opponent landed, and I'm like, yeah, there's not a lot of room for protection on that that sort of move, but it's incredible. Like oh, just yeah, to the people who haven't seen, basically he climbs to the top rope, grabs you by the head, sticks his knee behind your head, and just falls. <laughs> so it's basically a case of you being your head is being sandwiched between the mat and his knee, and it. It's it's the perfect finish for sort of a monster heel like that because it's it's like, oh look, I can get up here quickly and just look at how badly I crush you. You're dead. <laughs> he also did not stop Joe Jacking either. Like he was a brilliant heel because he's very urbane and can speak really well. So you're just constantly berating the bands. Um and yeah, just I would call him a hybrid wrestler, I suppose, really these days you know he's in kind of the mold of someone like oh i'm trying to think of anyone who's like him john moxley i guess that kind of heavy brawler who has technical expertise and is a bit of an all-rounder um but is mainly charisma <laughs> if that makes sense um yeah so i keep going back to that minora suzuki thing because i read it again this week about like you know why john moxley is really popular because he can't do anything but be john moxley <laughs> <laughs> It's like, why do people like Lance Archer or Zack Sabre Jr.? Because there's things they can't do. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, but I mean, this is, I mean, but this, I suppose this is a case of a guy who literally could do everything and, and did do everything. He did, he's a kind of a total package wrestler, but that was unique in that time period. Yeah, he, he sort of built like a barrel, but he doesn't move like it. Yeah. Your favourite kind of wrestler. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, more barrels that swear a lot. Um, Actually, that, that's one of the things I quite enjoyed about this sort of wrestling is like it felt like a nice blend between the sort of different 
brawly Texas style with like more smooth grappling and like wrestling focus. There's a lot of like amateur route to it as well. So there's a lot of like cat. They've got like the amateur takedowns, the amateur sort of grappling, and then there's it can easily devolve into that brawling style that you see in the south. Yeah. It like a rather like again the matches aren't stellar. They're mostly sort of squashy affairs and like five minute TV matches at most. But like the style in them is pretty damn entertaining. Yeah, it is. That's the thing. I mean, me and John have been kind of exploring amateur wrestling because every couple of days I will send him an Instagram reel about some poor woman that has been dropped on her head by a ridiculous suplex from another female wrestler, um, and or and or guys or just anything which were going to be go oof, John, I like this. Um, today I saw one. I didn't send it to you. I should have done. Was somebody literally did a shoot running power slam in an amateur match? Oh, that's incredible. It. It's insane. It was only like two steps because obviously it, it would have, the referee would have just disqualified him. But yeah, oh man, <laughs> crazy stuff. They, Anywho, they are brutal in those amateur leagues now. Like holy. Uh, oh yeah, because oh, it's, it's stiff. <laughs> ever since I've looked at some of the ones you sent me, like I get the odd recommendation recommended one now. I'll yeah. just see it, and it's like some poor lad or lass just being completely driven into the mats. And it's just a case of like, I thought this was grappling, and it's like, it is. They grabbed them around the waist and made them eat shit on a bloody mat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So let's just move on to the next superstar that is gracing the Georgia rings. That would be your Bam Bam Terry Gordy. Speaking of which, this was largely an amateur-style wrestling match with Bam Bam choosing to maul his opponent into a pulp because he's Terry Bam Bam Gordy and he can do those kind of things. I... He looks massive here, doesn't he? Like, he is a giant. And he's, again, he's just outworking everyone. It, it's quite the sort of monster heel with mobility and skill. Like, oh, I. It's quite, it's terrifying. Terry Gordy, when he was like eight, he's, he's only like 19 here. <laughs> this is the thing. He's like, he was like, he was just insane. It's like the level of talent he had. Um, you can see why he was so successful. Um, just looking at him, like he has the poise, he has the drive. He wins this by literally using a dragon sleeper and then just laying on the guy. So <laughs> 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 this all he had to do, just from this like, uh, well, just like reverse sleeper hole and just, and then they have to like, they have to like, just the referees have to come in and stop him from doing more damage because he's just horrible. And it's it's like it's Terry Gordy before the Freebirds. In fact, to, to be honest, this little run of these shows essentially gives you the birth of the Freebirds as Michael Hayes comes in to protect the job guy. And this was a kind of a thing that they did in territories. Michael would come in as a babyface. Terry and Buddy Roberts would be heels, or Terry would be a heel. Michael would ingratiate himself to the local heels. <coughs> Sorry, babyfaces. Terry would come in as a monster, um, and then eventually 
bang, <laughs> the three birds will be back together again. The first time I saw it, which was completely new to me, was uh, the tag team of Michael Hayes and Johnny B. Bad in around about 1994. Um, and Hayes, they would take this, this angle where Hayes would be Barrow's tag partner. Uh, maybe Barrow's tag partner. And he kept mentioning there was only this one guy in WCD or I can't wait to get my hands on, but I'm not telling you just yet. And this went on for like six weeks and they'd win the tag team match. And then this brilliant, well-organized tag team match. And then on the six weeks, so Johnny, Johnny would go, so Michael, who is that man? Because I had to lay the hands on for you. I would really rip him up. And Michael just goes, it's you, and bangs him in the mouth with the right hand. And that kicks off the feud. And it's as simple as it gets. <laughs> but that's what they did. Um, and they had a match at Clash of the Champions. But Michael couldn't do it because he had um, uh, an injured leg. So they dragged Jimmy Garvin out of retirement <laughs> to do the match. <laughs> it was like... Jimmy had just like he quit to be an airline pilot and he was like, I can't do this. And it was just like, it was just genius wrestling. I think it was the last thing Michael Hayes did before he left WWE. Um, but yeah, it's 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 kind of the classic free bird angle, you know. Keep them all guessing. Yeah, and it works. So why not do it? Oh, yeah, like a charm. Of course, they were in Hotlanta, GA, where the three birds were born. Um, next up, we had a squash match between two squash guys. <laughs> I can't remember his name. And they didn't do graphics back then. By the way, the graphics, do you, do you see the graphics computer is exactly the same the graphics computer that WCW used um, in all the way up to the early 90s um, because they were still using that font up until around about 1991. Uh, which is remarkable. But of course, all of it was done by WTVS Superstation, which was Ted Turner Station, which was the company that would end up owning WCW. So they have come to, of course, they have the same graphics computer. <laughs> I'm going to move on to the more memorable matches <laughs> because I can't remember who that guy is, which is, you know, which is something they could have done. They, they had the ability to do it. So I don't know why they didn't just like superimpose. Um, names onto the beginning of the matches that would be lovely. But the most famous person I think out of this particular area was kind of a Georgia mainstay was Austin Idol. And he would be up next. He was in the process of being Terry Gordy's second in this particular match. Um Austin Mind Idol was the quintessential um territory wrestler, really, at this particular point. And um, he had everything. He had the look, he had the talk, he had the body, and he had the in-ring skill. He could go, he could have matches with anybody. He was truly one of the ultimate heels of that particular era. And he made money hand over fist for promoters all across the South. Uh, what's your initial thoughts of Austin Idol, sir? Oh, once I saw Austin Idol appear, I was like, well... I know who's running this territory then, because there are a few people quite like Austin Idol in this time period. As you said, he is like the full package. He's like the quintessential pretty boy heel who the men hate even more because of just how good he looks. And it 
again, he's he's just there talking at this particular point, and even then you sort of catch you're like, oh lord, yep, I remember everything about Austin Idol, and he is going to kill someone later. And it just <laughs> works. He, he is one of, if not the greatest wrestling heels. <laughs> he is. He's, he's just astounding. He was a very good babyface as well, don't get me wrong. But he was a born heel. Absolutely born heel. Obviously, there's a lot of influence from Superstar Billy Graham, the tie-dye tights for one thing, the blonde hair for another thing. But he made it all his own. You know, His ability just to command a room and to command a ring, like he would clearly go on to influence like Steve Austin uh, in the uh, stunning Steve Austin days, obviously not in the later Steve Austin days, um, because they were physically so alike. But, you know, I have seen him in matches all over the South, from Texas to Memphis to Georgia. He just had this presence. I am intrigued as to why he didn't make it anywhere bigger, and I wonder if it was political reasoning behind it or anything else. And of course, he's still with us. He's still a big presence on NWA television um, because he was born for this environment. And even now as a manager, it doesn't get much better than as a talker than Austin Idol, does it? The thing I love is like the match that he has is literally just him punching the shit out of a jobber. And then he finishes it with the, the figure four. Oh, sorry, the... Um, Vegas leg lock. Oh, what's it? Las Vegas leg lock. Las Vegas leg lock, even. And it, it's just a case of, like, you've watched this guy just pummel, pummel him half to death, and then he just whips out one of the smoothest-looking figure fours you'll ever see. And it's just a case of that. That is intimidation. It's like, I can be this... There's no hold barred brawler where I'm just punching you in the face repeatedly and then that's it. I'm going to tap you out because I can. I could have knocked <laughs> you out 10 years ago, but nope, I'm going to tap you out. It's like uh, there's, there's so many nice touches across these matches where you see the full extent of the wrestlers. It's not just a case of, oh, it's a squash. I'm just going to hit my best moves and leave. You get this sort of you will get this little sort of interconnected narrative of, I'm not just going to show you what I can do. I will show you what I am capable of and how quickly I can snap that off to do something else. Yes, absolutely superstar. Um, we should talk about the Battle of Atlanta. We, we alluded to it earlier, but the, the full story is this. Ray Gunkel was, the, of course, the chief booker for Georgia Championship Wrestling in the early 1970s. And after a match with Ox Baker, he passed away, um, took a heart punch, and actually died a year later. <laughs> um, I don't mean to laugh about that. It's just that, like, you know, the heart punch was always pushed as the deadliest thing. Turns out, actually true. Um, anywho, um, they um, basically, Ray Gunkel's wife and Gunkel um, was kind of it, was an assistant to Ray during his um, run as the booker. And she decided to set up her own wrestling promotion called All South Wrestling Alliance, which ran all over Georgia. She had some help from an investor, one Ted Turner, who she happened to go to college with. Because, <laughs> of course, she did. Um, and after two years of uh, All South Wrestling Alliance kind of running Georgia and 
causing Georgia Championship Wrestling all sorts of problems. Um, that's when Jim Barnett came in. He had promotions, like we said, in Indiana, Michigan, Ohio, Colorado, and Australia. Um, and that's really where Angunkel's problems kind of went downhill because they started getting locked out of arena dates because, of course, Jim Barnett had all the connections and the money from the old NWA connections and they could control things. And obviously, they had Harley Race or Jack Briscoe or Jerry Briscoe, who would later go on to be actual owners of Georgia Championship Wrestling. So there was all sorts of things that kind of played into that, and that's what made it such a strong powerhouse as Ted Turner's allegiances moved away from uh, the All South Wrestling Alliance towards Championship Wrestling. And all of a sudden, they got money from WTPS. And essentially, they were becoming a national promotion at this particular point um, because they had national syndication through cable, which no other wrestling company had, not even WWE. Um, the next star to appear on this particular show is the one promoting this Thanksgiving night show for tag, the, the tag team tournament is um, Crippler Ray Stevens, looking very dapper in that suit. What did you think of that? Yeah, that, that was a pretty snazzy suit. You, again, they look like stars. They do. That's it. And that's the whole point. I mean, obviously, Crippler Ray Stevens and his former tag team partner, Pat Patterson, the former AWA World Tag Team Champions, um, or in this tournament, Jack and Jerry Briscoe, Bob and Brad Armstrong, Sato and Mr. Fuji, Russians, um, Rick Martel um, and Tommy Rich, the Oates brothers, Tony Guerrilla and Wahoo McDaniel. I think it was that Wahoo McDaniel and Tony Guerrilla. It says WI. <laughs> trying to look at the really through the list and like, I'm going like, what? Let's just go through this again. Uh, one second. I'm going to pause this so I can see it. Because uh, they didn't bother putting four names. Obviously, the graphic would cost them too much money. <laughs> it's like, when do you put all the name on there? But yeah. So um, it was the only Atlanta 8 p.m. Thanksgiving night, $20,000 on the national tag team title to the winning team. Um, yeah, Brian Bob Armstrong, Mr. Saito, and Mr. Fuji, uh, the Russians, which would have been, uh, oh, it would have been um, Krusha Khrushchev and, and uh, Ivan Koloff, Bob and Brad Armstrong, and then the second page of this, Rick, Tommy Rich and Rick Martel, the Oates Brothers, Tony Guerrilla, are Mr. Wrestling 2, and the Sheep Herders. <laughs> um, that's quite a lineup, considering the way they were at the time. Um, and of course, they got uh, Pat Patterson and, and Ray Stevens to come back together for this. Next, we have more Tommy Rich, so we'll skip along to the next match, which features Tommy Rich tagging up with Mr. Wrestling 2. Uh, the man with the million dollar knee lift. The guys over at the Round and Wrestling Review love Mr. Wrestling too. They think he's amazing. What did you think of him? Yeah, he's he's only in the one match for this thing, but again, he's he's always been a dependable face and a dependable wrestler. And yeah, I understand the hype around him. He's pretty entertaining to watch, and here he still gets his licks in. Even again, it's not the longest match in existence <laughs> no true very very true um it is a squash match the wrestling against mark sharp and that's killer kowalski's son um not mike sharp obviously kowalski's first name killer kowalski's son's first name he wrestled as mark sharp and he was doing like job matches and stuff obviously didn't want to run the family name down i guess um, um and i'd seen him in quite a few matches like around the south 
where he did wrestlers, uh, Kowalski Jr. or whatever his first name was. Um, but I did, did remember him being. Um, this wrestling too seems very undersized for the region, but he is a good technical grappler, isn't he? Yeah, he's, they've done this sort of hour. It's like, it's the Mexican guy, so he's going to be, he's not going to be as big, but he's going to be fast, and he's going to be technical, and he's going to bring the lucha. They brought him in more as a sort of exotic attraction, as degrading as that sounds, <laughs> the attitude they kind of had with him. Yeah, true. Um, I mean, he would go. He would have some money-making feuds in various places, but it seems like they would just brought him in for the tag team tournament because they obviously couldn't get Rick Martel down from the AWA to tag with Tommy Rich. So it was like, well, he hasn't got his partner yet, and he hasn't got his partner yet. So let, let's let's put these together, shall we? Next up, we have the Sheep Herders. Now, this was not um, Butch Miller uh, and Luke. This was William Boyd and Luke. Because um, Butch had actually gone back to New Zealand at this point to wrestle at home for a while because he wanted to see his family and he was a bit sick of them. So keeping the Sheep Herders name together was uh, William Boyd and uh, Luke Sheepherder. I can't remember his name or every second name. Luke, it's Butch Miller that was... Luke. I'm glad that was cleared up because I was looking at the sheep herders and I'm like, that's not Butch. Yeah, and I'm like, no. It's Butch looks really different because like Luke looks like Luke. Luke always looks like, like Luke is incredibly recognisable. And I was sort of just like, that's not Butch. Luke Williams, that's it. Yes. Um, yeah, Luke Williams was um, always the constant member of the Bushwhackers. Um, but yes, William Boyd was Australian, I believe. Um, he was only acting as an Australian and Lord, Lord William, as he was known in his solo career. Um, but he's kind of got the butch thing going for him. A big brawler. And these two are vicious. <laughs> they haven't evolved to the full-on sheep herder, you know, wearing combats and stuff somebody who'd work on a farm would wear kind of deal that they would later adopt, which would be handy considering the number of death matches they were about to embark upon. Um, but, yeah, they were... They just looked rough and they could go. And they were a brilliant team to have in a tournament like this because they could get heat really well because they lent on New Zealand nationalism. Well done to Jacinda Ardern for, for her run as Prime Minister of New Zealand, by the way. So speaking about New Zealand nationalism. Um, and they, they run it on, essentially, they run it the same way that the kangaroos did for years, working on, we're Australians and we're better than you in this particular case. We're New Zealanders and we're better than you. And that was the whole point. Take a massive amount of bumps and work your socks off. That was it. Yeah, they, <laughs> they were not slacking in this match. And the, there's some of the, like, bushwhackers offense that would come down the line, but, like, they are very vicious and very yeah. aggressive. And it's just, yeah, again, it's it's sort of interesting seeing the prototype for what would come later, I guess. Yes, these people would eventually be the bushwhackers. <laughs> and you can't believe not... it. I think my favourite thing from their match, though, is they do the assisted headbutt thing, like battering ram. And Roddy yeah. Piper just goes, I've never seen that before. And they're like <laughs> both so shocked at this like double team offense. It's just it's a nice touch. It is. And they probably haven't. They probably haven't seen anyone do that before because it's like, why would you run your own head into your opponent? That would be silly. But they're the sheep herders. They're tough, they're hard, they don't care. 
and that's that was a, a true thing. Did death matches earlier, by the way. Oh yeah. <laughs> the sheep herders did death matches. You not heard of the sheep herders and the Fantastics? Funnily enough, on this show is Tommy Young of the Fantastics. The Fantastic, you not heard of the Fantastics? Let's start there. <laughs> well, the Fantastics. I, I the Fantastics were kind of, they were in the era of um, the Pretty Boy Tag Team. They were kind of like the ultimate babyface Pretty Boy Tag Team. Um, very much in the Rock and Roll Express, Midnight Express kind of range. Um, they were, they were kind of, originally it was Terry Taylor and Bobby Fulton. And then Tommy Rogers and Tom Bonnie, not Tommy Young. Tommy Young was a different wrestler. He was a referee, in fact. Um, Bobby Fulton and Tommy Rogers, and they came to the ring in bow ties and sequin tuxedos. They were good looking lads, um, set of hearts of fluttering, as you can imagine. And they got into a feud with the sheep herders, and they ended up having barbed wire cage matches. This was in UWF, by the way. <laughs> and it was the only time Butch and Luke walked off a promotion because Bill Watts had booked them in 36 barbed wire cage matches in a row with the Fantastics and the Sheep Herders. And after about 13, the Sheep Herders went, no, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> I'd have to look some of those up. I'm, I'm yeah. surprised I've not heard of them. I'm a sucker for a barbed wire cage match. They did um, an awful lot of matches in Puerto Rico as well. They were considered the most vicious tag team in North America at one point. Um, they were the reason why the Rock and Roll Express never won uh, the uh, Crockett Cup. They beat the, they beat the Rock and Roll Express twice, I think, in the Crockett Cup. Yeah, they were they were top dogs, but they were the they kind of like they were top heels in WCW at just the wrong time because just as they were getting to the top of the card along came the road warriors the steiners the Freebirds. when the midnight express and rock and roll express were already there doom skyscrapers and sst and all of a sudden the entire landscape of tag team wrestling changed forever <laughs> so it was like oh well you can't keep up with them then can you so they left and went to the wwe and became the bushwhackers that was that um, and but to be fair to them, they got the best deal they possibly could in the WWE. You won't believe this, but Butch and Luke produced every segment the Bushwhackers did. They had they had creative control on the feuds they were in, basically because Vince was like, "Well, they're never going to win the tag team championships, so I'm not really that bothered." And if you fill airtime with watchable TV segments that sell T-shirts to kids, I'm quite happy. So we let them get on with it. So they never had a complaint about creative control in their entire like 15-year WWE run because they had creative control because they produced all their own segments and matches. <laughs> Arguably two of the smartest wrestlers ever. Which <laughs> is hilarious oh, considering the characters they often portray. Yeah, but it was their choice. They came up with the characters. They designed those characters. No one made them. Which is kind oh, of like, yeah, living the dream, isn't it, in WWE? Do what you we like. Guys masquerading as stupid guys and having fun doing whatever the hell we want because nobody gives a shit what we get up to. It's perfect. Exactly. That's it. 
Yeah, Luke Williams went, went on to be chief booker in Puerto Rico for quite some time as well. After that, still is, I think. Uh, WWC, or is well, he may have retired now, but for a couple of years, because a couple of years ago, he was well into that promotion. You know, he was um, doing all right as a booker, producing good TV, from what I understand. I mean, anyway, sorry, not too long back, but the but like one of the bushwhackers wanted to have one more run, like. As the bushwhackers, it would have been Luke because butchers are butchers on crutches. <laughs> so bless him. Um, so yeah, I, I, can imagine. I just know I saw something about the bushwhackers recently. They could have got they could have got Rick Rogers out of retirement, I suppose, because he was a bushwhacker as well for a short period of time. No, I don't, sorry, Rick Morgan, not not um, not um, yeah. He, he was in the New Zealand militia. Yeah. But yeah, now there's all sorts of things that they did. You should, New Zealand sheep herders are a well, well, well traveled team. And did, they also had a massive human body pipe and Rick Martell in, in um, Iowa specific Northwest last night. That's, that was the infamous one where Piper smashed a bottle across his own forehead to prove how much he needed, he wanted to be the sheep herders. Yeah, <laughs> insane tag team. So let's move on. So next we have PS Michael Hayes um, in full on babyface mode here. He he's never been a great worker, but his ability to control the crowd is just absolutely stunning, isn't it? Yeah, it's like a force of personality and ring presence over like actual like worker. It. He sort of shows that you don't need to be the like golden grappler to get as ridiculously over as he managed to. No, he's managed basically does his entire match with two body slams in the front face lock. What more do you need? <laughs> Minimal effort, maximum output. Sorry? Fight smarter, not harder. Yeah. He is, he just, just, oh, just really good. Um, uh, like just manipulating a crowd. I mean, I won't want to see him watching watching do a twenty minute Matt Classic of um, Ricky Steamboat because that'd be painful. <laughs> but yeah, but for this sort of snappy format, it works. Yeah, definitely. Um, we'll move on because we already talked about Michael. Oh yes, that's superstar. Not super destroying. Tagging up with Ivan Koloff. Um, yeah. Obviously, we've talked about Ivan Koloff before. Do you know who Master Superstar was? No. I, I was trying to, I was seeing if I could work it out and I can't. It's like Master Superstar and Super Destroyer. They both look like the body shape is similar to someone. I just can't, I couldn't work it out. He would go on to be a three time WWF World Tag Team Champion. Right now. Oh, don't! I was going to say, don't test me on WWF history. <laughs> you all heard of them? One of the biggest tag teams of the eighties, literally biggest tag teams of the eighties in WWF. Oh, okay. It's Bill Eady, who was, of course, Demolition's Crash. I was going to say this has to be. This is someone from Demolition. I just wasn't sure which one. 
Yeah, Demolition Axe, not Smash. Smash was some repo man, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> who was mem- yeah, who was a member of the Russians as Krushy Khrushchev with Yagan Karloff there. There you go, you see. Everything links together in wrestling. Uh, but yeah, Bill Eadie was, um, yeah, he was he was quite a single superstar in the early 80s until he went to the WWF and came up with this demolition gimmick uh, along with Smash. Uh, Smash. Um, but was really quite something special. And um, even though it was kind of a rip-off of the Warriors <laughs> in many senses. Um, uh, but here, he's actually quite the accomplished singles wrestler. And Go was like no tomorrow compared to the later parts of his career. Though to be fair, towards the end of the demolition run, he did have a lot of heart from it. So this was kind of him at his peak, I would say. You don't really get to see all that much of him across these three episodes. He just kind of appears to throw Tommy Rich off his game and then disappears. Yeah, true. Well, we're scooting on to the next match, which features... Um, I can't remember his name. <laughs> the one that had a, Did this have Action Mike Jackson in? Yes, I believe it did. Action Mike Jackson, who is... Challenging for the X Division Championship next week, by the way. 73-year-old, still-going superstar, Action Mike Jackson. Yeah, and here we see him as a much, much younger man in Atlanta in 1981. So what, like, 42 years ago when he would have been 31. (laughs) Perhaps if the X Division title had existed, it would have been a very good and very solid contender for it. Just out with the sheer anarchy, I would love to see Mike Jackson win the X Division title. Just imagine that. <laughs> yeah, no, it'd be intriguing. It'd, I, I just, yeah, I, yeah. There is, it, it just builds its own storyline, doesn't it, though? That it's like, this is the title built for the best of the best. And a 73-year-old wrestler from the Georgia Territory days won it. Like... I think that would be pretty cool. Yeah. It doesn't um, have to be a very long reign. Just no. Be interesting. Arguably, it should be a very short reign, but yes. Yeah, I agree with <laughs> <you. But, laughs> I mean, I, 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 this time's when it's worked. My favourite kind of that kind of angle was the King of Trios in 2011 when Johnny Saint came out of retirement to wrestle in America for the first time. And they got to the time final. I think my favorite will probably forever be PCO winning the ROH World Championship. Yeah, yeah. It's like sometimes you do just want to see the wrestling world burn with the most anarchic (laughs) and ridiculous pick winning. And it's like, that's not a knock on PCO. I fucking adore PCO. And he still goes strong today. It's just nobody ever predicted him winning the ROH World Championship. And then he Absolutely did, enough. and everyone was just sort of like, ROH just jumped the shark, ROH just jumped the shark, and I was there celebrating, because I had to write the show. <laughs> <laughs> Next we move on to who would have been Chief Booker at the time, that would be your uh, Ollie Anderson, um, destroying some Porsche lad in this particular match by just grinding him into the mat. Um, I think we're still in the days of Ollie and Gene. Ollie was clearly the only person available 
I think Ollie Jean would have been in that particular tag team tournament. And watching this, the only thing I could really kind of, the only person I could really find it up to this day and age is Timothy Thatcher, who wrestles just like this. <laughs> just this is it. This is this is what Timothy Thatcher does now. And Ian Anderson was very much in that scope of just like batter people in the most efficient manner possible. Um, and he's probably the reason why the match had the 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 um, promotion had much more of a mat wrestling bent to it. If you see what I mean, mm. it certainly yeah. feels like that would be one of the main reasons for it. I mean, there's, there's also lots of negatives you can say about Ollie Anderson. He was racist. The show is incredibly white when you consider it's well the Atlanta GA audience where like 40 percent of the population is african-american um but it's been well documented his attitudes on those kind of things and we're looking at the product as a whole and as a product as a whole it was there was no wonder it was so successful it was slick it was well formatted you had great commentary and solid wrestlers um i was gonna say there's a pretty decent mix of different types of matches as well You'll get your brawling, you'll get your tag team, you'll get your grappling, you'll get your personalities. There's, It's a winning format. It, it sort of shows you why it stood the test of time. Yeah, it certainly does. I mean, it, yeah, it's obvious time. I wouldn't one necessarily would say that this format would work, but it does, doesn't it? NWA do it. I mean, I think NWA as its fans, I think NWA's kind of shot its bolt with casual fans because casual fans were really into it and then uh, happened. Um, what, you don't for, like Titus as world champion? No one likes Titus as world champion. No one likes Titus. Completely mobile, unable to wrestle, can't talk for shit unless it's to say something that will get him laughed out of a room, Titus. Just shocking behaviour. You're looking at me and telling me that's not world championship material. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even no, complete uh, this with a straight face because if anyone answers yes to that, you need clinical help. You absolutely do. And I think as well, when they started saying, oh, there isn't enough women around to help to run an entire pay-per-view. And it's like, yeah, there is. You just don't want to walk. Indies and you can't has be asked. the greatest like, women like, wrestling at the moment. Like, bloody hell. I'd, I'd watch an entire match if it was just Ziggy Hyam matches. It's just put Ziggy oh. Hyam in a gauntlet against like 10 other women. It would be fucking perfect. Oh, Janelle Kai could keep me interested all night. <laughs> just watching her matches, the same thing with her. They could do them in two rings side by side, make her own gauntlets. <laughs> and the winner of each gauntlet faces each other. Like a Barbie yeah. gauntlet. Um, like, NWA is most successful show. Like, how can you turn around and say, oh, there's not enough women for a second run? It's like, bullshit. If anything, well, uh, you should be doing more of them. Because of the, well, they're one of the things that will keep your company afloat. Well, yeah. Well, he's trying to do a thing, isn't he? Of being the, the edgy man-led company. That's obviously Trevor Murdoch that said that, though. I swear Trevor was... Murdoch's the baby first. Yeah, Trevor Murdoch said, no, Trevor Murdoch said, Billy said that he didn't think he could find enough women to produce, produce an entire pay-per-view. 
And then I'm like, well, hang on, there's only about two of those people that signed for WWE or AEW in like that were on the last one, so you could just use all of them again. Um, well, I think the, the the thing the difference is they didn't have the help, they wouldn't have had the help from Impact in AEW like they did on the last show. But then, yeah, um, um, Trevor Murdoch came out and said, I've never seen two women, I don't think I've known of two women that could headline a major pay per view. That's what he said. And I'm like, I know women wrestlers were better than you. Now, there's some talent on the NWA roster that is. Great, but you've got like the hex on that roster. Both of them are better than Trevor Murdoch ever was. <laughs> yeah, Alison Kane, Marty Bell could easily headline a pay per view. Yeah. So, yes, um, let us get back to Georgia Championship Wrestling. And uh, Terry Gordy and Austin Idol were cutting a promo. Um, but perhaps the most intriguing angle that we come up with, because uh, we've got a couple of matches I'm going to skip along because they're matches with featuring wrestlers we've already seen. Um, or... <laughs> um, let's skip along to a bit, because there was a promo, interesting promo on this portion of the show that I was intrigued by, which was, oh, well, you've got Tommy Rich doing commentary on... Um, the Super Destroyers matches, because of the conspiracy, as you were saying, the conspiracy about Super Destroyer being the same man as the last uh, superstar, which is intriguing, um, and a nice story to tell as well. And it truly isn't, um, uh, it truly isn't, you know, paranoia if they really are out to get you. That's what we can learn from that. Also, Tommy Rich's bowl court, we need to discuss this. Like, how did he get over that haircut? Because <laughs> it, it, it's, it's it's terrible. that big, and you talk that well. Who cares what you look like? Your hair is. He could be. Um, he could have a ten foot mohawk, and people would still be like, "God damn, this guy is incredible." <laughs> um, then we have Action Jackson jumping up ringside as um, the Super Destroyer um, is beating up his opponent and Skandor Akbar is at ringside. Skandor Akbar is one of the best fight managers ever. Also Scandalese and Skandor Akbar. And Terry Rush uh, decides to go interfere in that particular match as well. So the, yeah, so that was that was nice help though. I thought that was cool. And then we move on to um, another interview with Mass Superstar um, as um, the Angel wrestles uh, a job, job match. The Angel was a wrestler who was based on the, the, the 1960s angel wrestler, but he's not the same guy, I don't think. And the other guy had um, a disability that meant he had an absolutely out of proportion head. Uh, whereas in this particular case, the guy has just got a slightly larger head. Ooh. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that was that. Exploiting, exploiting deceased wrestlers for their disabilities is never a great thing. It's, it, it's the territory days. Yay! Yay. Um, it's the heel that wasn't that great. Um, and then we have one of the most intriguing promos, which is Gary Hart and Roddy Piper, with Roddy Piper interviewing Gary Hart, being sycophantically 
engrossed in the life of Gary Hart and Gary Hart being sycophantically engrossed in the life of Roddy Piper, saying they do love their bagpipe music <laughs> in Singapore, where the great Kabuki comes from. <laughs> it was. This was a great segment because, again, you've just got two people who get what they're there to do and they just make it work so perfectly. Yeah, that's it. It's, it's amazing. And then, of course, um, we have the Great Kabuki um, in the match. Oh, no, we don't have the Great Kabuki. We have, actually, future member of the Three Birds, Jimmy Garvin, who we just talked about um, in a match. Um, Jimmy's really just is getting started in his career, too. Um, he's a heel. He's got the bubble perm. It has yet to grow out to be his signature long flowing rocks. But you can see all the tools are there to make him a really good working heel. You know, he's got the aggression, he's got the ability, everything's in the right place for him to be a superstar that he would become. And it's intriguing to see him here in this particular format. Of course, he would obviously have his biggest solo run in Texas around about 85, 86 with David Van Eric. But this is just, this is just an intriguing way to see how he starts off his career. What's your thoughts on this, John? As you said, it's the sort of groundwork of what he'd go on to be. You see the tools, you see the inklings of something, and yeah, it's it's exactly what you expect, just slightly torn down because he's only just getting started. <laughs> he would come out of his shell in the following few months, as he would be gorgeous, Jimmy Gavin. Sometimes you say everything that needs to be said, so I have to try and come up with like some half-baked way of saying exactly the same thing, but with different words. <laughs> True, like, sorry. What do you think? Well, exactly the same as you, but I can't quite say that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, John. I will try to be less all-encompassing. Let us move on then to uh, this follow-up segment with um, Bradley Roddy Piper and Gary Hart as they really go in-depth and explain what makes... Um, the great Kabuki, as great as he actually is, and with some matches. What did you think of this segment? Because I thought this was really cool. This is how you build up a wrestler that people potentially haven't seen before. Like, this this is a masterclass in how you sort of set up someone great. Like, before they go out there and kill someone, you sort of big them up, you give out the background, you give out the sort of... But it, it all feels organic as well. It's not some forced thing where it's like, oh, yeah, he does that. And then you've got to sort of put, oh, he's also great at wrestling. But sometimes <laughs> you get you get promos from people where they're trying to tell this story and then there's just this sort of shoehorned in bit where they've got to big themselves up because they realise that all they've really done is tell us, like, some half-baked story from that has nothing to do with their ability. And then they're like, oh, and he was really good at wrestling. <laughs> Yeah, this isn't um, that. It's properly no. done. This isn't. This isn't true. This is indeed true. Um, for those of you who watched the final Muta match, have you seen it yet? I won't spoil it for you. But um, oh, this is the one that happened earlier today. Yeah, I watched it now. Um, there was a rare sighting of the great Kabuki. He came to see off his son into retirement. Oh damn! That's great. Yeah, it was awesome. It, I, the, honestly, it was like watching Monday Night Show, that show. I won't tell you everything happened, but when you watch it, you'll be like, oh, this is really cool. 
<laughs> it's, it's been oh, it's difficult actually to quantify out of the three shows I've watched in the last 24 hours which was the best one which is always great <laughs> I mean I, I still think it's going to be difficult to beat Kiyomiya just potatoing Okada in the face <laughs> that is one of the gl- greatest wrestling clips I've ever seen it's like I'm going to break the hold I'm going to break the hold. I'm going to break the hold. Haven't broken the hold. I'm going to kick him in the face. (laughs) Speaking of the great Kabuki, he has a match um, in what is ultimately like uh, the absolute living definition of a squash match. The other guy gets two arm drags in and that's it. (laughs) And then he gets murdered efficiently. It's quite funny because it's, it's, it's like they're going all he's gone all out to make this look different to your traditional wrestling strikes. There's a lot of chops, there's a lot of spin kicks, there's a lot of like sawbots, and then occasionally he'll just start dropping chops from the middle and top rope because it's like, oh, what will they think is weird? Yeah, that's it. That's basically all it is. He starts with the mist starts with the mist rather than saving it later so he can cover his hands in, in, in stuff uh, to put in people's eyes and things, which is obviously something Muta turned into an art form um, as he got into his career. But Kabuki is just, all oh, that armpit hold, the nerve hold in the armpit, that does look like it will mean. <laughs> it's it's just a vicious art of war, and it's yeah, it's, that's it's it. sort of perfectly set up by what Gary Hart and Rod Piper were talking about. Because it's like, we've got all this mysticism, and then he comes out and he does all this weird shit, and it's just perfect. It's like, it's not weird now, but to that audience, it'll be weird as hell, because they're just... He's swaying about the ring, he's, he's going for nerve holds, he's throwing out kicks he's chopping at people and it's just yeah it's again masterfully done to get something weird over absolutely yes you know and the way gary Hartman handles him out of the ring at the end of it all to like you know make sure he doesn't attack anybody else unnecessarily yeah it's just yeah. it's just just so well done it's absolutely really well done uh, let's move on to the next match. I think we've covered everyone that's on this particular show. Um, who's, who's in the last match? Um, oh, that's the, that is the one with um, Tommy Rogers in. Um, oh, yeah, of course. Kevin Sullivan and Wayne Ferris. Um, yeah. Punk rock Wayne Ferris. Do you know who Wayne Ferris is? He, he would become... You've told me before. You, this, I have. This is a recurring question, and every time I forget, and I go, "Oh, you've told me this, but I can't remember it." And I still can't remember it. He is the honky tonk man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, man. Yeah, and you've covered you in your three days of death matches. One October, you covered the match of his, didn't you? The um, Tupelo concession brawl. The Tupelo. Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, yeah. You told me about it for three years, and on the third year, I finally covered it. 
But yeah, Kevin Sullivan, who was of course go on to be chief booker for Georgia at some point and would be chief booker for WCW in the late late eighties. Wayne Ferris, who would become the honky tonk man. Um, and yeah, this was this was well, it was a, it was a squash. It was a bit weird seeing these two together because if I'm on a booking committee and I look at these two, I'm not putting them in a tag team together because they've got no real gel, have they? They're just two dudes. Oh, this was very much a sort of cobbled together tag team. It's just we've got them around. We've got to get them on the show somehow. Yeah, bit bizarre, really. Um, but that kind of covers that. That was the end of the show. That was the last match on the show. There were some big names, and people would go on to be much, much bigger names. Um, but it's interesting to watch so far removed from when it actually happened. Obviously, it's a product of its time. Like we said, it's awfully white, <laughs> but it, it, it's intriguing, I think, um, as far as like how it's presented and the influence it had. What do you think of the product now you've lived with it for three hours? It's a bit, as you said, it's a bit dated, but the weird thing I find is you've been giving us all these sort of historical shows from different time periods. And, like, all these wrestling purists who give out the back-in-my-day arguments make them sound so boring. Because, oh, back in my day, this was a finisher, and this was it. And it's like, well, no. Back in your day, they were still having pretty interesting and dynamic wrestling matches that just wasn't as much aerial stuff. Like, these guys aren't making boring cookie-cutter matches. Sure, they only go on about five minutes to fit into an hour of television with ads but you still get a nice varied range of different wrestling styles and different wrestling characters it's it's a product of its time it's not the most enthralling thing to watch because you've seen more interviews than wrestling but it's by no means bad no i think that's the thing it's like it's just solid stuff it's well presented basic wrestling that told a good story and put bums in seats, which is the whole point. You know, people wanted to go see these characters do these do these things. And that's the the whole reason debtor, isn't it, of professional wrestling is to get people to go and watch it. We look at it much more in an artistic form now than we ever have done before. Um, and perhaps we should do, you know. I was like one of the knocks on AEW is our their business model's all wrong. It's like, why do you care? It's not like they're going to go out of business tomorrow. <laughs> you know? Got people watching their product. They've got like, plenty of people going to see the live tapings. They've got plenty of people watching on YouTube. They've got plenty of people watching on Fight. They've got plenty of people watching on TV. They don't need yeah. to be making as big a number as WWE. Like, they've got billionaire backing. Yeah. Like, they've got a safety net. They can um, take the risks. They can stock up on the talent. And sure, you can mock Tony Khan for his bad decisions all you want. But why do you care specifically? If you don't like it, don't watch it. Yeah, this is it. And I'd also point out, if you're thinking about it from a business point of view, CMLL have essentially run that same model for the last hundred years. And they're doing fine. <laughs> 
they get about 10,000 people to go see them a week on a live, maybe 20,000 people to see them in one live venue. They don't even leave Mexico City. They don't even bother going anywhere else. They get around about one and a half million people watching them on TV every week. They do all right. They're the promotion in the world. They're all right. They're not going out of business anytime soon. It's good. They'll be fine. You know, but there you go. It's just the way it is, isn't it? <laughs> Anywho, that's about the Trooping Show for this week. Um, next week, we've got loads of things to talk about. And I'm sure me and John are going to have a conversation about what we want to cover next week because there's just so much of it. Um, and I would like to thank Mr. John Dinsell for joining me to discuss Georgia Championship Wrestling. So thank you for your time. Thank you for having me on. It's all right. Where can we find you on the internet, sir? find me at twitter handle john deathman that is the gateway to help lead you to my writings ramblings opinions the occasional complaint about Yu-Gi-Oh decks you can find me on instagram at john underscore deathman i know creative it's basically a backup it's a much more visual archive of examples of my work and like the death matches i cover and you can find me on patreon at deathmatch digest that is your weekly dose of deathmatch goodness two pieces looking at tradit like different historical and r- recent death matches this week i did uh kobk and keno trying to kill the great muta <laughs> and yeah there's freebies goodies that's patreon at uh, patreon handle deathmatch digest smooth advertising yeah. Indeed. You can find me at Sheriff Lundstar on Twitter and at Sheriff Lundstar TX on Instagram. You can find the show, Troopany Show on Twitter, The Troopany Show on Patreon, and Troopany Show on Instagram, and The Troopany Show on Facebook. Um, obviously, Patreon, if you go and contribute there, you'll help keep the show free forever for everyone. Please do. Uh, like I said, next week we'll be either talking about New Japan or Noah, or possibly both. Um, we'll have a chat about that now, and we'll decide what we're going to do. Take care, I'll speak to you soon. Bye! Thank you.